Be prepared to be changed, challenged, awakened, and refreshed. Back by popular demand, Tent Theology is offering another online summer school this August. This summer, we'll be looking at the life and thought of Soren Kierkegaard. It is hosted by me, Stephen Backhaus. I did my doctorate on Kierkegaard and have published a number of books and articles on him. The online course will explore the amazing life and important ideas of this influential 19th century Danish rabble-rouser, who understood more than anyone the difference between being a Christian nationalist and being a follower of Jesus. The course involves discussion, teaching, and guided reading. It will take place over the first four Mondays of August 2021. Each session will be based on selected passages, as well as the biography I wrote a few years ago entitled Kierkegaard, A Single Life. All the reading material, including a paperback copy of the book, will be provided. Over the summer, the weeks of reading and discussions proved to be some of the most invigorating weeks I'd experienced in years. And that's saying something since I started skydiving a few years ago. I strongly encourage, without reservation, anyone thinking of taking a 10th theology course to take the jump. For details, prices, and to register, visit the courses page of the Tent Theology website or email info at tenttheology.com. Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Tom Millay is our guest today on the Tent Theology Podcast. As you are about to hear, Tom is a pastor and he's also a top Kierkegaard scholar, which of course attracted my attention. So I brought Tom in to talk about Kierkegaard, Christianity, patriotism, nationalism, and everything in between. This recording was actually done quite a few months ago, but for various reasons to do with scheduling, it's only coming out now. So there might be some anachronistic details that we bring up, current events that are no longer current. However, I think you will agree that a lot of the topics we're covering are perennial. I hope you enjoy this conversation. There's a lot of good stuff in here, so let's get on with the show. Tom Millay is joining me at the Tent Theology Podcast in order to talk about Kierkegaard and nationalism and patriotism. I first came across Tom when he delivered a paper for the Kierkegaard Society or the... um, uh, He'll tell us exactly what it was called, but there's a big Kierkegaard Society in America. And uh, he delivered a paper on nationalism and Kierkegaard. And in fact, he, he used some of my work and even critiqued me in his <laughs> paper. And I was very interested and intrigued by this because he did it in a very kind and loving way. I've never been critiqued and, le- and left feeling so encouraged before. So I was very impressed by the way Tom did that. So I got in touch with Tom and thought this would be a great chance to record a conversation because I have always talked about Kierkegaard and he shows up a lot. He's kind of running throughout everything I do in Tent Theology, but I realize I've never sat down and properly introduced Captain Kirk to my audience. So who better but Dr. Tom Millay. Tom, welcome to Tent Theology. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. And 
I just want to say a word of thanks for your podcast and the kind of moral clarity you bring and, uh, and the moral passion that you bring. I really appreciate all that about your podcast and I'm just oh, wow. thankful that it's going on. So yeah. I appreciate oh, you having me. That's really kind. I, I didn't even know that you had, had heard it before. We talked mm-hmm. talk just now. Um, mm-hmm. Tom, where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Goldsboro, North Carolina. It's in okay. Eastern North Carolina. It's about an hour west of the coast, uh, the eastern coast of the United States. And it's about 45 minutes east of Raleigh, which is a pretty major city in North Carolina. So that's, that's sort of where I am situated. And I am a pastor here in North Carolina of First Christian Church Disciples of Christ, Goldsboro, North Carolina. So that's, that's where I'm coming from. How long have you been a pastor, Tom? Not very long, since June oh, of wow. 2020. You're, so a baby, you're a baby pastor. That, exactly right. I'm still young and enthused and excited about church work. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so you joined, you started your job during lockdown. I did, yes. And uh, they, they had already suspended church services since March. Yeah. And then... Uh, when I started, everything was virtual. And during my time here, we've developed a kind of outdoor service where we're all spaced apart and wearing masks and things like this. And that's been really important to people uh, to be able to at least see one another's eyes, (laughs) if not their whole faces and just gather and, and have a short, short time together every Sunday. But that's, that's been our sort of, uh, progress through this pandemic as a church so when i when i when you first came across my radar it was because you were a kierkegaardian scholar and you were delivering a, who what was the name tell us the name of the outfit that you were delivering your your paper yes for. it was for the hong kierkegaard library so as in addition to being a pastor i'm a senior research fellow at the hong kierkegaard library which is based in saint olaf St. Olaf College, which is in Northfield, Minnesota. And this is the library that uh, Howard and Edna Hong, who translated the works of Kierkegaard into English, uh, they amassed this huge library in order to uh, accomplish that translation and then donated it to St. Olaf College. And that's where this major Kierkegaard Center of Research is based. I've even met someone at the Kierkegaard Library at St. Olaf, who had come from Copenhagen to there because yeah. he had found resources in America that he could not find at the the uh, sort of Kierkegaard Center that's in Copenhagen, where where Kierkegaard lived and died, uh, and where there there is still a major researching center in Copenhagen as yeah, well. Yeah, the but... two major world centers for Kierkegaard studies are Minnesota <laughs> and uh, Denmark. That's right. Yes, <laughs> and the other one, Tom, is actually Montreal, as was. So you know Gregor Malanchuk. Yes, the, the yes. So when he uh, he was a Czech Kierkegaard scholar, and he had he amassed a huge um, uh, library. In fact, the Hongs mm. were his students, and mm. he he was oh, so yes. he'd been displaced because of war so many times. Mm. I think I think he was displaced because of the First World War and the Second World War, mm. and he was so scared of losing his his library to yet another chaotic war that when he died he gave half of it to St. Olaf and he gave the other half to McGill University in Montreal. Mm. 
And uh, uh, so, so that I guess he was thinking no war is going to get Canada and America at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> and by, purely by coincidence, I didn't know this at the time. Uh, I, I did my master's in Kierkegaard and I, I went to McGill University to do this. But I didn't go because I had known this story. I didn't realize that Kierkegaard, the, the Mid Montreal McGill was a Kierkegaard center. I went because I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen, the poet who went to McGill. Yeah. And I always wanted to go to Montreal. And when it came time to do my master's, I was like, well, I'm going to go to Montreal. And I showed Those up. are probably better reasons. Oh, it's a fantastic reason. I showed up, uh, realized that I'm actually in a center for Kierkegaard studies. And I was able to find uh, there in the library at, at McGill, they have a copy. They have Kierkegaard's own copy of, uh, I think it was Practice in Christianity. Mm with his own um, underlinings in his own book. Mm. And I was able to look at that and hold that. And I just, that was amazing to me. I've never seen that before. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm assuming that it was because I, had, I, I couldn't read Danish at the time. So I, I just was trusting that they, maybe they would have totally conned me. Maybe, I don't know. So anyway, there you go. But so how did you end up in Northfield and Sonola? What was your connection? Oh, yes. So uh, I had... I was at Baylor for undergrad okay. as well as doing my doctoral studies there uh, much later on. And Baylor is a kind of hub of Kierkegaard studies yeah. as well in some ways, because there's multiple people who study Kierkegaard there. Yeah. Um, Steve Evans has been a person studying Kierkegaard there for a long time. And actually I got connected really into this world through uh, a Canadian scholar named Paul Martins who teaches ah, yes. at Baylor. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, he's so far only published, I think, one book on Kierkegaard, but people in the Kierkegaard world know yes. him. I'm uh, looking, he, I'm scanning my bookshelf right now to yes, find the book. Because exactly. I, exactly. I actually wrote a, a review and oh. endorsement of it. Oh, that's anyway, great. There you go. Anyway, I can't find it, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, so I, I studied with Martins there, and I, I come across Kierkegaard before because I don't remember the person who told me about him. But mm. what I remember is that person told me here is a theologian who is also very well versed in philosophy and has, okay. uh, has some philosophical sophistication to him. And up until that point in my reading life, I had been really most interested in philosophy. I loved to read Plato and loved to read Kant and okay. uh, Heidegger, things like this and had, uh, wasn't really aware that there was a Christian theologian who had the same kind of uh, philosophical interest as these other figures. And I think okay. that's what really kind of turned me on to Kierkegaard is to, to find someone like that right. uh, who was also a, a theologian. And were you, how old were you at this time? Like, were you just a teenager or a young man? Or what was Yes, that? just an 18-year-old freshman at See, Baylor. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. That's 19, right. that's when I discovered Kirk, 19. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Isn't that interesting? Uh, although I completely disagree with Bart that you leave Kierkegaard behind <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> I think yeah. we should stick with them yeah. our whole lives. But uh, So you um, were an undergraduate, went behind you, yes. somebody shoved Kierkegaard in your face and said, read That's this. right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so you did your undergraduate degree in, in sort of religious philosophy or what, what was That's right, yes. Okay. And I, I wrote an undergraduate honors thesis on Kierkegaard. And that's the first time I went to the uh, Hong Kierkegaard Library in St. Olaf. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
that it was very strange for me. I was a, a junior in college uh, and everyone else, there were 12 other students there that summer and they were all PhD philosophy students. And I was an undergrad religious yeah. studies student. Yeah. And so it was very different sort of culturally for me to interact with these folks. Uh, and it was uh, a time where I really grew a lot. And I think that that is the time where I really... Uh, understood for the first time what it meant to be a scholar, what the life was like, the okay. reading life and the creative life of a scholar. Uh, that was the first time I really experienced that. And I experienced it, I think, because like a lot of people, I had an undergrad professor, Paul Martins, who just saw what I was doing and who told me, this is work you can do. You can do yeah. this. And so go ahead and try. And that's what I did. And uh, ever since 2007 is when I did that. I've been really involved in the Kierkegaard world and yep. have, I only love it more now than, than I did then. It's, it's, and I only love Kierkegaard's works more now than I did then. I continue to read them every day. So um, I, I've found a lot of depth and staying power in these, these texts Where, um, that I was first attracted to. What did you, uh, what did you do your doctorate? You did your doctorate on, Kierkegaard what was the yes what was the exactly what yes, was the focus? yes the focus was on Kierkegaard's asceticism which has okay. a lot to do with uh the lecture I gave um for the Hong Kierkegaard library and I was especially paying attention to how Kierkegaard places suffering at the center of Christian life and how he understands that suffering because I think he in some ways takes up the patristic and medieval legacy of Christian renunciation and practices of ascasis or discipline. So fasting, poverty, chastity, these sorts of traditional practices. But he also really takes them in a new direction. Mm -hmm. I think even though he is an ascetic, in my opinion, that's A-S-C-E-T-I-C, -E ascetic, um, he is a really sort of strange one and different one. He's mm -hmm. continues to be critical of monasticism throughout his life, for example, but he's critical of monasticism because he sees it as actually uh, stepping away from the public witness that a, that, that right. a Christian is called to. Yeah. Um, and, and so in Kierkegaard's mind, the choice of monasticism is actually stepping away from the suffering that a Christian is called to. It, it's a step yeah. into more comfort and security, whereas the Christian is out in the public square witnessing and incurring suffering on account of that witness. So that is still, in my understanding, an ascetic understanding of Christianity because it is placing that renunciation and suffering at the, the center of Christian life. Is this part of the, uh, the, when Kierkegaard says that Christianity is always a corrective? So whatever the common culture is, yes. the follower of Jesus will be basically a, a corrective to that. Yes. <laughs> so they're they're yes, always going to exactly be in the minority. Right. They're always going to be against the common sense of the crowd, whatever that might be, right? That's right. And you might wonder kind of, well, well how can he know that? How can he know this? Right. And it, uh, you, you can know it if you assume, as he did, that the world is ruled by selfishness, that selfishness is the force that rules politics right. and, and that rules church life in a lot of cases, uh, that, that the powers and principalities of the world are governed by self-interest, self-assertion, right. or selfishness. And right. 
because that has never changed, that means Christians whose lives are centered in self-denial will always be the sort of outside party, the marginal party. Uh, And of course, he means Christians in the sense of a New Testament Christianity, yes. uh, not not a sort of nationalist Christianity, which yeah. would be its opposite. So, yeah, yeah, this is where we get into the muddle with the word. The word Christian applies to <laughs> two right. opposite That's things, right. but the uh, mm-hmm. the cultural he would Kierkegaard would say Christendom mm-hmm. and authentic Christianity versus Christendom. I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I, yes, this is part of it, isn't it? That agape love. So Kierkegaard makes a great distinction between erotic love and agape love and eros Mm -hmm. is all about love for uh, love is all about what you get out of it sort of like you you love somebody because Mm -hmm. they are loving you back whereas agape Mm -hmm. is all self no self-interest it's unself-interested love right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that's That's right the opposite of selfishness yeah it it is but i think um that um, that um opposition between agape and eros has sometimes been uh, sort of misunderstood, I think. And the way I understand it is that when he's talking about uh, erotic love or elskov, or you could translate it romantic love sometimes, uh, or friendship, or it, in this way, uh, what that means is, I think if you look at sort of the broad, a broad selection of his text, what it means is not that he thinks all desire for another person is bad, But he's talking about the kind of desire where you make someone else a part of your project, of your project of self-assertion, where you choose someone else to be a part of your life because you want them to serve you, make you feel better, provide things for you, uh, make them a part of your own self-project. That's that's the sort of thing he's critiquing, I think. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your, so tell us about the nationalism project. This is your next yes. book, isn't it? You're going to write about That's nationalism. right. Yes, so yes. So how does, um, how does Kierkegaardian asceticism and mm-hmm. nationalism work out? Yes, yes. So um, this is, it is a part of a book I'm working on called Kierkegaard in the New Nationalism. Uh, and it's, it's looking at, especially the attack upon Christendom, which is coming in the last couple of years of, Kierkegaard's life. Uh, and it is connecting my interest in asceticism or uh, suffering and renunciation being at the heart of Christianity to this question of nationalism. And uh, it is, I, I think I should start with your book, actually, and talk about how uh, I'm trying to build off of your work. <laughs> I wouldn't say so much critique as just build off of. <laughs> um, so what you can correct me, Stephen, but this is the way I understand very briefly the argument you make in your book, Kierkegaard's Critique of Christian Nationalism. Yeah. Basically that nationalism is a type of identity formation wherein you find your identity as a person through your nation, that your nation becomes an integral part of who you are. And thus to act as a Christian and to act as an American, it's the same thing. Uh, It's basically the same identity. Right. And what you're saying is that you find in Kierkegaard a different model of what it actually means to be a Christian, wherein God and Jesus Mm. do not interact with temporal 
structures like nations or right. societies, they happen or they occur in the world directly to an individual in what's called the moment in Kierkegaard. Right. There's right. a sort of direct relation between the individual and the God who created the universe. Uh, and there's, there's a sort of uh, immediate relation yeah. between God and the individual person. So your, that, authentic, that is, your authentic yes. identity is not rooted in the group that you were born into. It's rooted right. in this orientation you have towards the divine. That's exactly right. Yes. Right. And so that would always be prior to any sort of national identity that you right. might have. And given Kierkegaard's other commitments, it will always be critical of these other identities yeah, right. you may have. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's the way I understand what your book is saying. Is it, do, you, do you want to take a chance sure. to expand on that? Or? <laughs> this sounds good. All right. So go on. Hit me. Sorry, so you, you think I need to be built upon. So go on. This well, is, why I, do, this is yeah. why I wrote the thing. Tom. This is why any of us do any of this stuff is we, we, we slave away for four or five years. We write a PhD. We add our little brick to the pile of other bricks. And then we hope mm-hmm. that somebody takes them up and builds something else with it. So you want to move on from you. You want to, you want to have a, you, you think that, that I, I have misjudged or that I'm not, I'm well, not quite used uh, nationalism or Kierkegaard in a way that could be most helpful to today. <laughs> I don't know if I would go so far as to say misjudged. <laughs> I <don't> so <laughs> what, I, what I would say is that uh, I think your, and this is probably me sort of taking your work and uh, maybe too uh, grossly summarizing it right now, but I, I sort of understand it within a legacy or a tradition of critiques of nationalism Mm -hmm. that aim to critique identity formation. So Benedict Anderson is the most famous example of this, where he talks about imagined communities. Yeah, right. And he sort of points to the fact that, well, all of these nationalities, we can see in history how they were constructed over time. Mm -hmm. None of them are national. People were not born German. This was a national identity constructed explicitly over time. And this is where nationalism studies still is in a lot of ways. The the nation is a story that we all buy into. Right. A story we all buy into. And uh, this, this still, I think dominates studies in nationalism. And what, what I think it does, I think it's very important, but is at a sort of second level to the most basic thing. Okay. And the most basic thing is, our desire for nationalism, okay. which okay. I take to be right. a desire for self-assertion, right. uh, a desire to sort of exercise force upon the world, to make mm-hmm. our country the best, the first, the greatest. Right. Uh, and that, that is the self-assertion. And it's that sort of desire that motivates nationalism. And so critiquing identity mm-hmm. formation, saying uh, you could do this in two, two ways, a secular way like Anderson does and say, well, these identities are all constructed and thus you should not accept them as being real. Right. Or you could do what, what I understand you have done, which is to say this way of constructing Christian identity does not actually accord well with what's in the New Testament. And yeah. Kierkegaard points that out for us. Yeah. Uh, and I think what, what I'm trying to argue is that that will not actually convince anyone no because what is driving their 
commitment to nationalism is not necessarily their belief in this identity construction. Right. It's right. their desire for that they identity love. construction. They yeah. want it. Yes. Yeah. They, yeah. they want it to be true. Yeah. And thus, because they want it to be true, it's impervious to this kind of theoretical critique. Yes. Yeah. And so my idea with asceticism is that Christian asceticism has always been about the disciplining of desire. And that's why Christians in antiquity and Christians in the Middle Ages did things like fast, go without sleep, uh, be celibate, things like that, because they understood that as shaping their desire in a certain way and actually replacing the basic human urges towards self-assertion with self-denial, with a kind of uh, openness to the world and openness towards serving the world that cannot be combined with self-assertion. So there's this way in which the more you fast, go for sleepless nights and things like this, like the early Christians did, the more you are preparing yourself to be in service to the world. Uh, and the more you are rooting out that self-assertion, uh, that, that basic human urge that we all have, the more you are rooting that out from within yourself. Mm. And so that's why, that's my argument basically mm-hmm. that, asceticism needs to come first. Uh, and then what you're doing, the second more theoretical where level. Is, where your heart yes. is, there your treasure is, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then my, my understanding is that this second theoretical level is still very important. I think at some point, I think you need to start with these ascetic disciplines, which you can see right. in Kierkegaard's life as well, of embracing yeah. poverty and chastity yeah. and obedience. Yeah. I think you need to start with those, but then you do need to introduce at some point this idea of what are these directed toward? What's the telos of these practices? Yeah. And the telos needs to be something like resistance to Christian nationalism. Yeah. And so I think that's sort of the whole picture. So my understanding yeah. is that your work is still sort of very important and is what my work is trying to drive towards. I'm yeah. just saying I think it needs to start at this this ascetic level. I mean, it is... It, there is something about, like, I don't think we're ever going to make Kierkegaard a household name. I hate to break it to you, Tom. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. But, because there's too many K's and too many E's and too many A's, it's just, it's just not going to work. And there's that, there's that O with a line through it as well, which is just, it turns everybody off. The O. But there is something anyway about Soren Kierkegaard that really speaks to the present age. Isn't it? I mean, he really does. This is why I discovered, this is what I liked about him. When I, when I discovered him, I was 19 years old. I was, I've told this story before, I think even on the podcast, you know, I was working as a bookseller and I, and I discovered fear and trembling. I was using my employee discount. <laughs> I was working my way through the world's classics and I read fear and trembling. And, uh, and it was like, he was describing my world. You know, he's this guy who died in 1855 in Denmark and he was describing evangelical mm-hmm. patriotism mm-hmm. to me and, mm-hmm. and it was it was precisely what i was going through which was i was dislocated i was a canadian evangelical now living in england mm. and my i closely identified my christianity with my sort of patriotic identity mm-hmm. which was christendom and then i uh, moved to england and i wasn't around my people anymore and yet they were all followers of jesus still so now what mm-hmm. do I do? And, and here's kierkegaard describing like you can follow the moors and the morality of the land all you mm-hmm. want and that doesn't actually mean that you're following 
the way of God or hearing God's voice. Just being a moral citizen is not the same as being a, a follower of God, right? Right. Yeah. I think you said on the podcast before, yeah, can't being a Christian should be able able to make you into a bad citizen, an right. unreliable yeah, that, citizen. Yeah, I mean, this is what, so then when you read sort of like, you know, Attack on Christendom or Practice in Christianity, some of Kierkegaard's later works, and you, you know, he's saying not only does it take you kind of outside of your common morality, it will put you against it. And mm-hmm. that the kind of, the sort of societies that humans construct are designed to shelter you from the way mm-hmm. of Jesus. They are meant, they're basically meant to uh, escape having to follow the way of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so when you add, slap a Christian name on top of that, now you have Christianity against Jesus. Mm-hmm. And to, to have somebody describe that to me, uh, you know, uh, was so good and so interesting mm-hmm. and then so relatable to today's environment where being a follower of Jesus is now, we've now reached the point where if you say you're a follower of Jesus, you, that's like you rescinding your your cultural identity as a christian <laughs> right that's right that's right you know yes, yeah. for those of us i mean you you experience it i want to hear about your experience living in the american south but mm. you know we live in this world in which being a christian is almost the thing that you have to give up if you are now going to follow jesus <laughs> that's that's exactly and I was right. Like, Kierkegaard is more relevant. I think he's more relevant mm-hmm. to evangelical North Americans mm-hmm. and British Europeans um, than he was even to Denmark. I think Christendom, mm-hmm. Kierkegaard's Christendom is more in effect today than it was even in his own native Denmark. Mm-hmm. This is one of I think arguments. that's that's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, I and guess you're, you're just picking this up that that you're we are creatures designed for love that's what we do it's non-optional right <laughs> humans have affections we love so who do you love and that's going <laughs> to affect how you act and, and what you go for <laughs> have you had much success you're a pastor in the in the <laughs> south of america have you had much success tempering the affections <laughs> well Christians? i this that is a great question so so i would answer it this way so i think i i am a pastor of a congregation with multiple political allegiances which is actually pretty rare yeah uh, nowadays that's a precious jewel you should yes exactly Yeah. yeah yeah so they they don't all lean the same way uh and for me it has been I'm still learning how to be a pastor, of course, because I just started in June. But my theory of it is that being a pastor is about persuasion in a lot of ways. How do you persuade Mm. the people in your care, your flock, to grow more faithful to Christ in their life? Mm -hmm. And for me in my congregation, I think that does not usually look like explicit critiques of nationalism. Right. So because that would very much not persuade some of the members of my congregation. Yeah. yeah. And uh, for my understanding, uh, the persuasion can still happen at this level of asceticism and yeah. actually can happen as well at the level of teaching the content of the New Testament. 
And yeah. you, you developed this really well in the, the first podcast you did of saying just how foreshortened uh, the preaching and the knowledge of Scripture is in, in some contexts, that they yeah. prefer not to speak of the passages of self-denial in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I found that the best way to be persuasive is to uh, emphasize this heritage that is recognized of ascetic practices like fasting and uh, repentance mm-hmm. and uh, works of charity. And to marry that at the same time to uh, bringing up these texts that are maybe inconvenient uh, for this political project to bring up these texts about self-denial of concern and providing for the least of these, these, these sort of texts yeah. uh, that bring us back to what Kierkegaard called New Testament Christianity. And that has been formed in my mind because uh, as a way to resist nationalism, because there's a very good study of uh, nationalism in the United States by these sociologists, Perry and Whitehead uh, that came out this year, from Oxford. And they basically say one of the crucial elements of Christian nationalism is its lack of content. It is basically just a label, as you're saying, it's Christian as a label, as a identity marker, as a mode of self-assertion in the world to say, we are Christian, we are good, we deserve to rule. That That is the way it's used. And that, of course, short circuits all the actual content of the New Testament, which is opposed to a lot of the things that this label is. It's very well known Mm -hmm. that that a lot of the self-professed Christians score very low on actual Mm -hmm. uh, knowledge of Christianity. (laughs) That's that's a pretty, that's a well-known truism, actually, among sociologists that uh, certainly in America, a lot of people who call them the self-professed Christians don't actually register uh, mm-hmm. any better than atheists or Buddhists or anybody else when mm-hmm. it comes to asking pretty basic questions about just the content mm-hmm. of, of the Bible or of the Christian doctrine. So, yeah. And I mm-hmm. think we find that with Christian, I think even didn't, didn't that Perry and Whitehead study, didn't it show that Christian nationalists actually have a lower church attendance than others? Yes, that's right. That's right. It doesn't really matter. It's an affiliation. It doesn't yeah. really matter to yeah. uh, actually attend church. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And they found that, um, in general, the people who go to church more often are less likely to be Christian nationalists, yes, which yeah. is, is very interesting. Yeah, yeah and I again, it's just the, the poverty of language that we have one word Christian to describe just these ridiculously opposite. <laughs> one, and and my, my argument is they're all Christian. This is the problem that we're not getting in a, an argument here of who's a proper Christian or not, because they're all Christian. Mm-hmm. A Christian nationalist is a Christian. Mm-hmm. So are you like so am i so what are we going to do about it you know i don't think we're going to change the language but you are going to do it by by drawing on it feels like you're building on um you're appealing to what people have already signed up for right so you're saying Mm -hmm. okay you're here you call yourself a christian so now we're going to talk me through this how would how would Mm. pretend that i'm a, a pretend that it's the fourth of july and i'm wearing my uh my make america great again hat and i've got hot dogs in both hands and i'm ready to go how would you talk how would you talk me through uh asceticism as a way to to make me rethink my patriotism Mm, good good i would i think not uh 
not address anything you were doing explicitly head on. This right. is my theory yep. as a pastor. Yep. Instead, I would just, if you were just out there, a part of the congregation, I would give a sermon on how the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and how right. we're called to imitate Christ. Right. And I actually, being a pastor just these four or five months has made me, uh, it, it's made me trust in people's ability to make connections. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that person sitting there with uh, the Make America Great Again or America First, these sorts of slogans that seem to uh, explicitly say other people should serve us. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, would would see the the contradiction there, yeah, and yeah. maybe would start to question: yeah. uh, Do my identities cohere? That's where that that second yeah. level, the theoretical level, can actually work. Yeah. Although it's it is uh, it is relying upon what is I think nowadays actually an ascetic discipline of some time of actually getting up and going to church. They wouldn't hear this message otherwise. Yeah, right. And so there is a sort of practical discipline that's also supporting yep. this, yep. Um, this second level theoretical reflection. Yeah. And I think it's also, I, I had a friend um, point out to me, you know, the work you're doing as a pastor is not all sermons. It's also leading, leading your congregation to serve the poor, you know, yeah, exactly. and in doing that, that in itself is also combating nationalism, yeah. whether people yeah. know it or not, you know? So yes. uh, both of these things are persuasive. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I do love that. I mean, it's very, um, well, it's very attractive in that kind of, well, here I go. We're being very Kierkegaardian here. That's very indirect communication, isn't it? Yes. yes. Have you, are you, I mean, <laughs> the listeners here are going to be swimming at sea. Kierkegaard uh, had a difference between direct communication and indirect communication. And for him, direct communication was, it was good for all sorts of things, just sort of basic facts. And, you know, that red means stop and green means go and two plus two equals four. That's all direct communication. But the really important stuff in life has to be delivered in such a way that the hearer owns it for themselves or has maybe mm -hmm. has helped to construct it for themselves. That's how you can't just say, stop being a patriot mm -hmm. directly. You have <laughs> to win people over. You have to draw them in. And it sounds mm -hmm. to me, that's exactly what you're doing. You, you're not even talking about patriotism. You're talking mm -hmm. about lay down your life and serve the poor. Exactly. And then the Knowing connection that, happens yes. later and you're trusting. That's it's a very hopeful, trusting kind of way to look at the world isn't it it's you're not about that's dominating right. you're not trying to win an argument i think that's right and i i think it would be very difficult to be a pastor and i think that the times when i have been most ineffective as a pastor is mm. when i've tried to win an argument yeah, yeah. Uh, and and try to sort of draw conclusions for people right and i think that's that's a temptation probably for all pastors but especially for a pastor like me who's coming from a teaching context yeah. my instinct is to teach and that sometimes means to say things explicitly yeah. but i have to learn to trust my congregation and to know that they can see if there is if i'm able to bring to light a possible contradiction between their beliefs their way of life and what's found in the scriptures which they all uh completely believe in and mm -hmm. and hold to and yeah. affirm yeah uh 
if, if I'm able to bring that to light, they're able to make that connection. And yeah. I really, I really do believe that's true. And I think you're right. in in what Kierkegaard is adding to that is saying, when you leave the space for them to make that connection, it's more powerful. It has more of an effect on their life than yeah. if you just said patriotism is bad yeah. and you must accept this conclusion. It just bounces mm-hmm. off somebody. They haven't, mm-hmm. they haven't had <laughs> to right. do any work for it, right? This is probably That's why a... he wrote under pseudonyms. He said, I want to make it. We live in a world in which becoming a Christian is as easy as being born. Mm-hmm. I need to make it hard. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> only right. valuable things are hard. That's and, exactly uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So we, we need to write under pseudonyms and we need to make complicated arguments <laughs> that, that kind of go in weird places because it's supposed to make you work hard for it. You're not supposed to mm-hmm. just get it, you know, delivered to you whole. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating. Now, what's the, uh, you, you've written another book on Kierkegaard. What's the other book that you've written? Yes. Well, I wrote a book on Kierkegaard's philosophy of reading. Uh, okay. It's called you, you Must Change Your Life, Soren Kierkegaard's Philosophy of Reading. Does that relate and to the stuff we've been talking about just now? It, it really, um, it only relates at a sort of foundational level. Okay. It doesn't explicitly discuss nationalism no. uh, in the book. And uh, the basic idea is to get on board a philosophy of reading where reading becomes explicitly about the transformation of one's life. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of the purpose of reading, according to Kierkegaard. And he is uh, he is bold enough to say, this is what reading should be about for you. And if you're not doing it this way, then you're not doing it right. OK, <laughs> you're not. And I think that I, I had never heard this, you know, during my whole time in college, anything like this uh, about what is the purpose of reading? Why do we read? There's all these sort of, um, there's all these hermeneutical theories, how to interpret, what's the right way to interpret, what are multiple interpretive options. But mm. that doesn't address the question of why you're reading in the first place. Why should you do this? Mm. Uh, and that's, that's a question Kierkegaard frequently provides an answer to. And he's basically saying, you know, it, unless you put these words into action in the transformation of one's own life, then you are simply... Uh, not reading in his definition of reading, you are indulging a kind of pastime of curiosity, perhaps. Right. Um, and the reason why the same sort of uh, understanding of reading can be found in Augustine, and Kierkegaard is really drawing on him. But I think what is attractive to me about Kierkegaard is he's also much more open than Augustine to what can actually contribute to the transformation of the self through reading. He basically thinks any sort of reading material can be transformative. Even if you're reading uh, an article about beetles, uh, right. that, that can be transformative because it leads you, if you look into the intricacies of beetles or of ants, right. that leads you to praise. It leads you okay. to a reminder of the Psalms that you have read that speak of the creeping things of the earth and praise God on their behalf. Right. And you enter a space of praise during that time of reading. And, and I think uh, th- this is um, this is Kierkegaard's point that basically anything can serve for transformation of the self, but everything should serve that purpose. That's what reading should be about. Mm-hmm. So, what are you reading right now? What have you got bookmarks <laughs> in right now, Tom? <laughs> that, that is a great question. And so, um, uh, I I actually have for the past three months 
been reading Practicing Christianity oh, very, very slowly. Yeah. I'm actually working on a commentary, uh, a kind of extended commentary on Practicing Christianity. Wow. Um, and yes, and I, I can't um, say the name of the publisher yet because it's still a provision. I have, I have to complete the book um, and, and have it reviewed to see if it will, will be accepted. Oh, wow. Um, so I don't have any further details, but its provisional title is the the abased Christ, and okay. uh, and it's a reading of practicing Christianity. And so I've been reading book. that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Tell us I a bit more so. about this. Go on. To, to teach. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to teach us now. You don't have to be indirect. <laughs> Tell us about practicing Christianity. What, where well, did this book I, come from, and why is it so good? Yes. Oh, yes. Good. So uh, it's written later in Kierkegaard's life, in the year 1850, and. Uh, a lot of Kierkegaard's major works are written by 1846, which is yeah. when uh, his major sort of contribution to existential philosophy is made in 1846. So it's a bit later in his career. And he, in this work, Practicing Christianity, is really developing his thoughts on who the person of Christ is. Who yeah. is this person of Christ? What did his life look like? Uh, what were the characteristics of this person? Yeah. Because he has an earlier work, Philosophical Fragments, that mm-hmm. is uh, about Christ, in a sense, references Christ, mm-hmm. but gives very little content as to who the person of Christ is. Doesn't even it basically name just him. says, what's that? He doesn't even name him. He just calls him the right, God-man. Right, calls him yeah. the God-man. Yeah. And says, basically, for that work, the only content of Christianity you need to know is that God became incarnate in a man. Yeah in the first century in Palestine. That's all, that's all you yeah. need to know. Yeah. Um, and practicing Christianity is this kind of rich orchestration of all this content of who was that yeah. God man, who was yeah. that person of Christ. And so he, uh, he goes through what actually characterized Christ's life, uh, which is things like poverty, spite, abase, abasement, and marginality, these yeah. sorts of things. And, um, I think for the American audience I'm speaking to, maybe the most important thing he does is a delineation of what Christian persecution is right. and what Christian persecution looks like. Yeah. And he, has, he grounds his understanding of Christian persecution in the life of Christ. He basically says Christian persecution looks like that it, it holds this certain form that you as a person have access to power towards self-assertion and towards uh, sort of becoming something in the world, becoming a force in the world. You have access to that power and you renounce that power. You give it up. Mm -hmm. And then as a result of giving up that access to power, you then are persecuted on that account. Mm-hmm. It's what he calls in works of love, he calls the double danger. This is the double danger of Christian life. The danger is both that you renounce power and then that you are persecuted because you renounce power. And of course, this is grounded in Christ's life who has mm-hmm. access to the mantle of earthly Messiah, mm-hmm. gives that mantle up, and then is persecuted on account of that renunciation. Mm-hmm. And so how this speaks to our moment Mm-hmm. is we have a lot of Christians in America who think that they are persecuted. Yeah, right. <laughs> and what Kierkegaard would say to that is, you are not persecuted. Uh, what, what is happening occasionally, I think only very occasionally, is that you are trying to assert your identity, your beliefs as dominant in society. 
as right. giving sort of the laws, the rules, right. and the sort of authority to uh, impose your moral views upon society. Mm-hmm. That, that is your aim. And you are being thwarted occasionally in yeah. that aim. Yeah. Here I would say, that's not Christian persecution. That's simply sort of losing in a worldly way. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with the persecution Christ faces, where he has access to power, gives that power up, right. and yeah. then is persecuted because of that renunciation. Yeah. So it, there's a real difference between thwarted self-assertion, which yeah. I think is what is going on in America, and Christian persecution, as Kierkegaard understands it, and puts forth in practice in Christianity. This sort of, this is yeah. the form Christian persecution has to take. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, it is, I mean, you got to watch out, my friend. You're a pastor. I have to say, I think persecution of Christians does exist in America, but it usually happens um, by Christians against people who try and follow the way of Jesus. <laughs> the only the only people I've ever known who've been persecuted for being Christ-like, uh, it's because they've lost their jobs or their mm-hmm. livelihoods because other Christians are canceling them. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid <laughs> yes. that's what I've noticed is that yes, yes. you try and act mm-hmm. like Jesus and it's the Christians who snipe at you. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like that guy that got, he got, uh, the guy who was giving cups of cold water to, uh, to migrants mm-hmm. coming across the mm-hmm. Mexican border. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was tried. He was a mm-hmm. Christian. He said, no, I'm giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus to people who mm-hmm. need it. And he was put mm-hmm. in jail. So persecution of Christians does exist in America. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, yeah. and that, that accords with the form that Kierkegaard delineates in the New yeah. Testament. Of, yeah. You know, this person could be going along with the dominant expression of Christianity in America. Mm-hmm. They could be benefiting from Yes. Their allegiance to that Christian identity. Yeah. Instead, they are giving that up. Giving it up. To yeah. follow the New Testament, what the New Testament tells us to do, yeah. to take care of the stranger, as it yeah. says in Matthew 25, and also, you know, says there will be some dire consequences if you don't do this. Exactly. Um, to follow that, that text, they, they are renouncing this uh, sort of Christianity of cultural allegiance. And yes. so that renunciation has then brought persecution upon them. And that yeah. would follow the type yeah. of persecution we see in the life of Christ. Yeah. Do you see, I mean, so I'm sitting in my, you know, I'm British and Canadian and I'm an outsider and I've lived in the States, but, and I, you know, obviously have a professional interest in American Christianity, but you're actually living it. You're right there in the heart of it all. Do you see much of, I mean, is, can you say anything to my cynicism? <laughs> can you tell me? <laughs> so, like, you know, I often say we've got to take Kierkegaard seriously when he says Christianity has done, Christendom has done away with Christianity. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. But now I talk to you and you're living in the heart of Christendom and you sound mm-hmm. like a follower of Jesus. So maybe mm-hmm. Kierkegaard was wrong. You think Christendom <laughs> in America has done away with Christianity? Oh, man, that is a great question. I, hmm. That is interesting because Kierkegaard himself, I'll start by thinking through this with Kierkegaard the way I usually do things. (laughs) Kierkegaard himself earlier in his life did have that hope. Uh, The the hope principally that leaders of Christendom would confess that they are not actually living Christian lives, uh, that they are living lives of comfort and security that don't accord with uh, the witness of the apostles. Um, and, And that was his hope. And it seems like at some point, during the attack upon Christendom, he decides the illusion is too thorough. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and people just cannot penetrate it unless this whole structure is done away with Mm -hmm. Uh, or uh, unless Christendom has abolished Christianity, unless Christendom is abolished, then Christianity won't uh, be able to exist. Uh, It needs sort of fresh air as Nietzsche would put it. Um, So uh, has that happened in America? Uh, You'll have to give me a second to think about how they answer (laughs) that question. (laughs) I don't want you to suffer from friendly fire. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. I'm less thinking about that than thinking about my own experience. Um, I think my answer to it is just that I don't know yet. Uh, that I think that's a possibility, but I think I'm working as a pastor in the hope that it's not the case. Yeah. And the fact that we still, that a lot of Americans do still come to church and that the scriptures are read in church and preached upon in church. I I think the, the one thing that I've been convinced of as a preacher so far is just the absolute radicality of the Bible. (laughs) That as long as the radicality of the Bible is still able to speak, then there is still hope. And it, as long as yeah. people still feel that as a claim upon themselves, then there's still hope, I suppose. Yes. It's uh, like Christendom has smuggled yes. in the agent of its yes. own demise, right? It's, it's got a little that's ticking exactly time right. bomb. It kind of yes. has to, even the most patriotic American church, even Robert Jeffrey's church, you know, in, in mm-hmm. Texas, it has to have the Bible. That's right. And that Bible exactly has right. a lot of ticking time bomb in yes. there that's going to blow up that patriotic nationalism. If yes, I think that's right. So, so I think that that's, that's what still gives me hope. I'm not going to say Kierkegaard is completely wrong right. uh, in making that kind of more cynical conclusion. Yeah. But I think I myself am not absolutely convinced of that yet, uh, that, that I work in the hope that it's not true. So I suppose I sort of... Uh, uh, place myself at an earlier stage of Kierkegaard's life that the illusion still can be penetrated in some ways if yeah, right. we continue to speak of uh, the radical nature of the scriptures and of Jesus. Yeah, It probably does just require you to make a shift in your sense of uh, vocation because you're not really a, a pastor of a Christian na- in a Christian nation. You're a missionary mm-hmm. to Christianized pagans. That's right. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. You're a missionary. Yeah. This is your mission field, which is a mm-hmm. bunch of pagans who think they're Christian. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. do you know, do you know my friend Mark Teachin? Yes. He, yeah. So yes. he wrote a really good book about Kierkegaard mm-hmm. as a missionary to Christians. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I wonder uh, whether uh, that's a way to start mm-hmm. thinking about, like, all right, well, mm-hmm. rather than how does, how does the New Testament approach? complete non-believers how did paul mm-hmm. do it how did philip do it how did jesus do it mm-hmm. that's how we should be doing it even when we're amongst if we realize that christendom is actually there's very little mm-hmm. uh discipleship of jesus or even knowledge of the way of jesus mm-hmm. within christendom very little we might as I well think, be yeah. pagan you know might as well be <laughs> yeah. tree worshiping germanic <laughs> pagans right yeah. So then how does, how does they act? How would, how would Paul approach a tree-worshipping Germanic pagan? That's what maybe we should do when yeah. we go, you know, when we preach to Americans. <laughs> I, I right. don't know. That's right. Well, well I think, too, that it, um, part of what this leads me 
to is uh, a question of how how comfortable sort of thinking about the abolition of Christendom yeah. leads to another question, which which I, I think you can absolutely before the abolition of Christendom without necessarily thinking that Christendom has completely stamped out Christianity. I would okay. say I'm yeah, still right. for the abolition of Christendom. Yeah. Uh, even if I haven't reached this extreme conclusion that Kierkegaard came to. Yeah, right. And so the abolition of Christendom, I think, would be the demise of America. Uh, And the question would then be how, as a person, how comfortable are you with that? Yeah. This is where I think Kierkegaard is really interesting as a political theologian because uh, he disagrees with classical liberalism in the sense of, such as laid out by John Locke, where... uh, the absolute most important concern of a nation must be the material well-being of its citizens. That's a sort of basic principle. Uh, And what Kierkegaard is basically saying, I think in a lot of ways, is that Denmark can burn. It'll cause a lot of suffering, but that's okay. (laughs) Right. Uh, And that the, the demise of Denmark in one way or another uh, would would be would bring suffering, but that suffering would be beneficial right. for authentic Christianity. Right, right. So I think that that really is a question posed to American Christians is um, it, it is and, and I think a, a lot of American political theologians who have not really broached the subject of uh, is, is something bad that happens in the material world can we still embrace that as Christians as being something good? Because maybe the demise of America leads to a renewal of true authentic Christian faith. So are you okay with that demise in favor of, of the faith? I think that's an important question. This this would lead back to, to, to the, my kind of argument that I was making before about identity formation. Like where are you drawing your, Mm -hmm. your purpose and identity from? Mm -hmm. Right. Because if, if the demise of your nation, you, I often have this argument with people and they'll be, you know, you'll say, ah, oh, Jesus says you shouldn't kill your enemies. Yeah, but you can't run a country that way. And I just look mm-hmm. at them and go, well, you're right. I'm not arguing whether <laughs> you could run a country that way. I'm saying this is what Jesus did. <laughs> and, right. uh, and, and it could well be that following Jesus means your country isn't going to do that well. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there does seem to be that clash of identity formation of like, well, is my purpose to further the kingdom of Christ or is my fur- purpose to further the kingdom of of man or mm-hmm. of my country right so that would be maybe where i come back to my identity formation i don't th- and that's right but your but your approach about you don't go straight in you don't you don't your first conversation with the patriot mm-hmm. is not to tell them that patriotism is ridiculous mm-hmm. right that's you're right. absolutely yeah. right you don't start yeah. by taking a big dump on something that people find most <laughs> valuable mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that doesn't <laughs> do anything for anybody and it doesn't help that person or love them at all right but you do mm-hmm. start by maybe talking about their loves and their affections. Mm-hmm. And that leads to thinking, well, if I love Jesus more than I love America, mm-hmm. then what's going to happen when, <laughs> when my love of Jesus puts my relationship to, to American patriotism at, at stake. Mm-hmm. And at least that's, that's the Kierkegaard position you get to where he even says, doesn't he at the end, he said, I'm not trying to make you a Christian. I just want you to know the difference. I just want <laughs> you to know what it is that you're rejecting. If mm-hmm. you reject Christianity, great. 
<laughs> yeah. At least now you're honest, right? Uh-huh. Honesty uh-huh. I want, he said. That was what he was saying for at the end. He said, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make you Christian. I'm trying to make you honest. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's make it, you know, if you want to go with America first, good on you. Just don't stop. <laughs> but just be aware that you're not going with the way of Jesus. That's all. That's mm-hmm. all we're trying to say, right? We're not even <laughs> trying to make you choose one or the other. We're just saying these are two opposite things. Let's honestly look at them. Mm-hmm. And now you can make a choice in all honesty, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. exactly. Which has that kind of indirect nature. We're not trying to make, I'm not trying to bring down patriotism. I'm not trying to bring down America. That's not my goal. My goal is just to tell people, if you want to be an American patriot, you can't also follow the way of Jesus. That's all I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. <laughs> now, now you get to choose. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think you're going to have much more luck, Tom, because you are a winsome and kind and generous man <laughs> with a good sense of humor. Whereas I'm just an old curmudgeon. <laughs> you're going to have a lot more luck. <laughs> Tom, well, there's can... a role for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, where, where? I have so enjoyed talking with you. Um, where could I go or where could listeners go if they want to find out more about what you've written or, you know, do yeah. Well, tell us the name of your books or your book. Where else yes. can we go to get more information on you? Ah, great. Um, well, the, the name of the book I've published, it was published in June of this year, is You Must Change Your Life, Soren Kierkegaard's Philosophy of Reading. It's with Cascade Press and you can order it from the Cascade Press website or from Amazon or from wherever. Wherever uh, books and, are sold. Yes, exactly. And uh, other than that, I am working on several book projects. So I hope, yeah. uh, I hope if, if I've been uh, interesting during this podcast, people might be interested in, <laughs> in those writings in the future. I do also preach every Sunday and uh, the, these are available on our First Christian Goldsboro Facebook page, and you can just watch those videos. It's public. Oh, welcome to anyone. So okay. if you just type in First Christian Goldsboro Church, it will pop right up on Facebook. So uh, you, you can certainly um, it, see how I'm actually trying to put into practice in my sermons what I've been talking about here. So That's a Kierkegaardian preacher. That is a <laughs> hold. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fantastic tom malay thank you so much for joining us uh on the tent theology it was been a real joy and a pleasure to have you and i hope we talk to you soon farewell thank for you, now Stephen. bye bye to further support the show please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10theology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless you.